The Paris-based International Energy Agency, the IEA, it'll be 50 years old this year. Why should you care? Well, let me explain. And yes, the subject is, as I say, a little wonky. First, before we get to the subject du jour, let me start this episode with a personal note for those not scrutinizing my online profiles. The first of this year, I changed horses, as I say. I'm now a distinguished senior fellow. I, I hope you'll be afforded me more respect since I'm now a distinguished senior fellow. Uh, <laughs> I'm only half kidding. Anyway, I'm a distinguished senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation where, as we announced in a press release uh, early earlier this uh, month, I plan to work with the team there to create a new national DC-based energy initiative. And you might guess it'll be an energy information-focused initiative. There'll be more news on that to come in the, uh, in the unfolding weeks of this early year. And by the way, I will be continuing an affiliation with the beloved Manhattan Institute, where I'm now uh, serving as a contributing editor for that think tank's enormously successful magazine, The City Journal. <clears throat> so enough of that. Back to the subject du jour, the 50th anniversary of the IEA, the International Energy Agency. And doubtless, uh, there are gonna be champagne-infused celebrations at their Paris headquarters this year. But on this side of the Atlantic, I think it's way past time for the United States, the biggest source of that agency's funding, to rethink uh, the IEA's role. I could put it bluntly, the United States should suspend all payments to the IEA until it has restructured itself in a fashion suitable for our times. By the way, there's plenty of precedent for that kind of an action, both from both sides of the political aisle. I'll get to that shortly. But first, to show why reform is needed, let's start with the fact that the creation of the IEA was triggered by an energy shock that caused a global recession. 50 years ago, over the first quarter of 1974, because of the politically motivated Arab oil embargo, oil prices jumped 400% over three months, one quarter. Today, the prospect of a mere 40% price hike evokes panic in the politicians and investor classes. If you're thinking that the energy transition, I'm using air quotes there, if you think the energy transition is here and accelerating us away from the risks of dependency on hydrocarbons in general and oil in particular, well, that's where the naivete begins. And that's what epitomizes the problem that we have now with the IEA. We need secure, reliable, and affordable energy. The need for that is greater today than it was a half century ago. The features of today's energy markets, the nature of geopolitics, are at least as vulnerable to high-consequence disruptions as they were back then. Of course, there's a lot about today that's different and changed since 1974. There's the internet, smartphones, personal computers, never mind AI. None of that existed then. But all of that and a lot more is what led to a far bigger economy in the world today that consumes far more energy. And over 80% of all the energy is still supplied by hydrocarbons are used to fabricate and operate everything, including the digital features of the economy. And oil, the progenitor of that first modern energy crisis, remains the touchstone fuel in geopolitics. Oil powers over 95% of the movement of all goods, all services, all people. Economies collapse if the costs of transportation 
increase dramatically or worse, if transportation is unavailable, if it ceases. Since 1974, think about this, the number of cars in the world has increased by 400%. Total shipping measured in freight tons is up 700%. And air travel measured in passenger miles is up 2,000%. And oil is 95% of what fuels all of that. And the quantity of oil supplied from the Middle East is greater today than then. Of course, something else that's different now, it's consequential, is that the U.S. oil production is far greater, despite the trope back then that the U.S. had passed peak oil. And I can hear you thinking about Tesla and electric vehicles. And no, neither Tesla nor electrification of transportation can change this equation for a long time. Simple arithmetic, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, but I'll say just one thing about that wish to change the oil equation. Simple arithmetic shows that even the impossibly high goal of batteries powering half of all the world's cars by 2034, that wouldn't cut global oil demand by 10%. Those are the realities. So one is kind of reminded of the aphorism created by the great science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick. I read, I think, all of his novels. Great, great novels, many of them converted to movies. Uh, digress. So Philip K. Dick had a great line, and it was, and I quote, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away, end quote. There are lots of ignored realities about energy that aren't going to go away. But today, markets and geopolitical strategists appear to be placing a low probability on the chance of history rhyming with the events of 50 years ago, where prices are still pretty moderate, uh, the stock market has barely blinked as two wars have broken out in Ukraine and Russia and in the Middle East. Those two regions combined, by the way, are responsible for supplying well over half of the world's traded petroleum. But you, it would be the very definition of naivete to discount the chance that events will never echo either nature or consequence what happened 50 years ago. So if you want to assess the probability of that or prepare for consequences, that starts with having accurate and credible information. This brings us back to the IEA. The absence of such credible and readily available information to make plans, to react, to coordinate, the absence of that information 50 years ago was, at the, it was one of the key motivating factors for creating the IEA in the first place. There was also a desire back then to create mechanisms, which I should put in air quotes as well, to create mechanisms for coordinating supply and demand for oil if there were any disruptions for any reasons. Turns out that was uh, not so easy to do. The mechanisms have rarely been deployed and have been widely seen as ineffective. But the information part of the IEA was a central feature of creating such a body. The IEA today has not only strayed from that mission that began 50 years ago, it was forged in Paris, that first meeting back in November of 1974, it now has a new animating raison d'etre. It's one that conflicts with serving as a credible and unbiased source of facts about the state of play regarding the foundational industry, the energy industry, the one that makes everything else possible. 
So what happened at the IEA? Well, in 2015, not that long ago, the IEA, IEA recast its mission formally to adopt advocacy of an energy transition alongside advocacy of energy security. And then in 2022, just less than 18 months ago, the IEA doubled down on that shift of its mission with its governing board voting to expand the mission to, and let me quote, to guide countries as they build net zero emission energy programs to comply with internationally agreed climate goals, end quote. You notice I emphasize the word comply. And this is about internationally agreed climate goals. Okay. Uh, the IEA continues its analyses and reports about hydrocarbons, but it's now internally and psychically conflicted because of its vocal public posture pushing policies to abandon hydrocarbons. As a, a recent report from the European Parliament put it, the IEA has become a, quote, advocate of ambitious reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. Of course, that means collaterally, it's ambitiously trying to eliminate the world's use of hydrocarbons. It should be obvious that the nature and the extent of those, of those ambitions to rapidly replace hydrocarbons can themselves create rather, rather than ameliorate the risks of hydrocarbon disruptions. And those ambitions also create their own new classes of risks for disruptions associated with the energy alternatives themselves for the supply chains. For policymakers, investors, strategists, pundits, Having credible and accurate information is utterly critical for gauging any risks in order to frame relevant policies, investment actions. Whatever you think about the goals, as an advocacy organization, the IEA is not constitutionally capable of serving as a disinterested player. And uh, you should look up, if you are not in the cognoscenti of knowing the actual meaning of the word disinterested, uh, use Google or Merriam-Webster's. It means unbiased in a sense. It's a profoundly specific form of being an unbiased player. The unprecedented scale of the energy transition policies and the spending on it, it makes it pretty clear those who are advocating it can't be unbiased. In fact, the, the scale in spending now means that we effectively cross the Rubicon, going past mere ambitions to a time of consequential emergence of new new classes of risks, adding to the old classes of energy risks. After all, European nations have already spent trillions of dollars attempting an energy transition, and hydrocarbons still are their primary source of energy, and they plan to spend at least another $3 trillion by 2030 in Europe. And now, as I've talked about before, and if you're listening, doubtless know this, if you've gotten this deep into listening to my podcast, you surely know that the with the Inflation Reduction Act, Congress has decided a little over a year ago to join Europe in the pursuit of the energy transition and embarked on the biggest federal industrial policy spending program in history. By most estimates, the Inflation Reduction Act will spend or cause to be spent something between two and three trillion dollars over the coming decade in order to replace the existing hydrocarbon energy infrastructure. This scale of spending rivals, the, in, in inflation-adjusted terms, the cost of prosecuting World War II. World War II, I remind you, was the money was spent to add industrial capacity. And once one time, 
to build warfighting machinery. The goal now is to spend this money to replace an existing uh, energy infrastructure. The proponents of that spending like to brag about joining the same European efforts. Uh, they, they honestly, after it was passed, relabeled, at least rhetorically, the Inflation Reduction Act as the Green New Deal, which of course it is. So they like to brag about joining the European efforts. Okay, fair enough. That's a policy decision. But the combination of both continents pursuing at the same time the same goals creates new risks in the supply chains and geopolitics. It creates new risks for realizing the kind of aspirations and engineering of energy systems. I mean, once such huge sums are converted into hardware, and I'll remind you, we've talked about this before, everything about energy is fund fundamentally about hardware. So once all this money, and is this money, it gets converted to hardware, we're going to see like a, a fusillade of new claims adding to the existing claims about things like capabilities and what the real risks are, what the sources are, environmental impacts, security impacts, reliability impacts, cost impacts. We'll all have an interest in knowing what's true, at least to the extent possible. Also, as an aside, can I say, we'll all have an interest in knowing what's true, having information about where the money's being spent. So it's worth stipulating that Congress will need careful oversight of this class and magnitude of spending. You know, clear information about such a monstrous cash, cash gusher uh, to minimize, uh, be, it should be beyond obvious, to minimize outright graft, as well as creative repurposing of that spending. I mean, I continue this aside because it's important. Repurposing of spending has never been easier because of this legislative trend. This, is, this has been a bipartisan trend, sadly, towards uh, elastic language and legislation away from specificity. It makes it easier for administrative agencies to interpret laws very broadly. And meanwhile, what we've got is this massive, unprecedented cash gusher. And as one headline recently put it, there's a, and I quote, a race to spend the IRA's $100 billion in grants, end quote. Those are just the grants, never mind the other spending, the mandates and subsidies and loans. Grants, giveaways, $100 billion, a race to spend it. May I say a lot of otherwise normal scrutiny will be run over in that race. Uh, but maybe there's good news here. Unlike information about energy, the information about where and how the money is spent, how it's being deployed, should in theory be more easily subject to verification, to oversight. We'll see. But anyway, back to the core issue here, which is not about following the money per se, but one hopes Congress will do that. But to the core question about having credible and reliable information about energy itself, about energy supplies, energy markets, energy risks, energy performance all over the world. It bears keeping in mind that the, uh, the context for this goal of the gargantuan industrial effort is information about CO2 emissions because the whole purpose of these trillions of dollars of spending is to reduce, self-evidently, CO2 emissions that arise from hydrocarbon combustion. Again, I've talked about this before, so let me just summarize a few words, what the goal is of the spending and what the context is, because these are both informational facts that are generally not in circulation. In rough terms, uh, the government accountants, the carbon accountants, believe that the spending, the trillions, will lead to a roughly two gigaton per year reduction in US emissions of carbon dioxide by 2030. 
That number is sub subject to scrutiny. I personally think it's an overestimate, but let's take it on face value. The money would be spent trillions of dollars to get a two gigaton per year reduction in US CO2 emissions. But over the same period, emissions in Asia will increase by at least two gigatons, increase by the same amount. Uh, and and it'll, it'll increase by only that amount if all those Asian nations do what they promised to rein in emissions. Color, color me skeptical on that, but let's just take it at face value that the US spends trillions buying things from Asian suppliers because they're the primary source of all the materials for the energy transition. So we'll spend trillions buying things to replace an existing infrastructure to reduce our emissions by two gigatons a year from sources that will increase their emissions by two gigatons per year. This is arithmetically obvious. The net effect will at last will be at best essentially no change in global emissions, but a very big change in the exchange of capital. So following this will matter. Information will matter. Let me back to the, the core point I want to make here. It's a pursuit of those ambitions. The what will happen ultimately is the original policy objectives. They ultimately won't matter because what will matter is what actually happens. The facts of what, what actually happens to supply chains, how these machines actually perform, what costs are, what the environmental and social impacts are. All this will require clarity and credibility in the information tracking the actual nature of energy markets globally. The facts will matter because the scale is huge. The facts will matter because, to use the uh, expression uh, coined, the, the phrase coined by the late great economist Julian Simon, energy is the master resource, in his words. Many have used that since because he's right. He was talking about it as an economist in economic terms. I would refer to it also in physics terms. Energy is the foundational animating force of the universe. In terms of society and operating everything, we need we need energy. We need to know what's going on in energy markets. We need honest brokers of that information. And to keep beating this horse, the IEA is arguably and I believe endemically incapable of being seen such as an as a as a uh, call it honest broker. Uh, even if they honestly try to be an honest broker. They're stuck with cognitive dissonance. They're stuck with the fact that their entire animating purpose now is about avoiding hydrocarbons, about the energy transition. This whole question about what is accurate information, who can who can provide the information, do you believe the information you have? I mean, that's that's a whole separate subject that takes us right into the eye of the storm over that broad question of not just what's a credible source, what's a credible fact what's real information, what's misinformation, or more insidiously, uh, disinformation. This is not a new challenge for society, I, I know that. But I would argue that in terms of the subject matter we're exploring, it's it's really been uh, hypertrophied, amplified by the uh, you know proverbial perfect storm. You know, the perfect storm is when three forces intersect simultaneously. The three forces that are intersecting right now that impact energy information, of course, first, the hyper-politicization of energy technologies. Policies are partisan by definition, but technologies aren't. I mean, you know how it goes. If you're a Republican, you're pro-oil, and if you're a Democrat, you're pro-wind. So wind turbines are blue things, and oil wells are red things, to use the political phraseology. It's silly. I mean, technologies are technologies. They operate independent of politics. Policies to push them, of course, 
are political. The second feature, the second sort of force is going on, of course, is there's a rising distrust, a distrust of social media. And social media has become the primary source of information for most people. People create their own silos, as we all know. It makes it a problem to find a way to get information out, to break across the silos. And then the third force is intersecting simultaneously is the rising distrust of expertise in general, or of experts in general, especially those in government. Those three forces are colliding together and creating sort of a superstorm of challenges to for people to get accurate information. And I, and I, I, I sympathize with with uh, those uh, who are agnostic to the politics, if you like, of energy, but are interested in the facts of energy, trying to decipher what's true. So when it comes to the realities of getting uh, an understanding of how energy machinery can work, how it can be built, how it can operate, the consequence of building and operating different kinds of energy machinery. What's going to matter is not what policymakers or proponents hope will be possible, but what is in fact possible. And in fact, what is actually happening. It's the crux of the problem, of course. Whether you believe something is a true fact is, is kind of dictated by a higher hierarchy of confidence regarding the source. I don't put it in simplistic terms, uh, in the hierarchy of sources, scientists rank above politicians, right? Um, the hierarchy of knowability, um, something like the combustion efficiency of an engine or the electrical efficiency of a motor is far more precisely knowable than, say, the nature of or the prospects for building a fusion power plant. So there's, there's a very wide spectrum of what's what's where you believe somebody, the, where, it's, where the information is coming from in a very wide spectrum of what is, in fact, knowable. And there's, an, there's a hierarchy of consequences, too, from getting facts wrong. That's why you know, facts matter, as they say. Uh, you, you don't get to own your own facts and all that. So, But to my earlier point, there's a hierarchy of what kind of facts you can own. For example, if you get the facts wrong about history, you might say that just makes you ignorant, stupid even, without immediate consequence. Let's just stipulate. Pervasive societal ignorance is a bad thing. And it, in fact, increases the prospect for bad things in history repeating themselves. But, you know, it takes a while. Another example of where the, getting the facts wrong uh, matters, uh, but facts are complicated, is in economics. They have tax policy. So if you get the facts wrong there, there's just the consequence of making people poorer, for example. Of course, that has, if it's pervasive, has consequences too. You know, political revolutions happen because of economic destruction. But there's a, a distinctly different uh, feature of getting the facts wrong about an engineered product, about like an air, like the facts, getting the facts wrong about an airplane or a bridge or a nuclear power plant. I mean, the consequences of getting things wrong there can be immediate or even lethal. And that's, that's more typically true of the key features of facts across the entire energy domains. They are high consequence, and they can be they can be literally immediately consequential. So, give you an example, I guess, of fact fact challenge. Let's just the energy transition will require lots of copper. The energy transition wants to electrify lots of stuff. Copper is the center pillar of electrification. Copper is required not only for the distribution, the construction of all electrical machinery, distribution of electricity, but it's essential and used critically in wind turbines and solar panels, electric vehicles, batteries. Copper is the single most critical material in 
electricity domain for the very simple reason of the physics of that particular element. It is very close to irreplaceable. So if you looked at the data that are available, you would ask the question, are the world's mining industries producing enough copper to meet the ambitions of the policies to electrify? We know the answer is no. Uh, that, that fact is beginning to creep into popular news, but it gets infused with misinformation about the ease with which we can add copper. You know, we could add more copper by mining more copper, but there are a lot of facts about how easy or hard it is to open new copper mines and where the copper mines could be, the nature of mining, the nature of refining, who's actually doing it, where it's done. Uh, as I've talked about in earlier podcasts, most of the refining of the critical energy minerals, including copper, are dominantly in China and other Asian uh, regions, but especially China. China is the, the big dog of energy minerals refining. Just a fact. Can we change that? How easily can you change it? There are lots of facts about that that are knowable and that fall uh, very much on the high confidence part of the knowability spectrum as opposed to low confidence part. That is how long it would take to build new refineries, both in practice as an engineering matter and in reality as a political matter in the United States where it's very difficult to build any infrastructures like that. There are hundreds of similar fact-centric issues that impact energy domains. In fact, that's sort of the epicenter of what my podcasts are all about, trying to trying to get these facts out. Uh, I'm just one person trying to get them out. There are other people trying to get them out. But one of the reasons that we have organizations like in the U.S., the Energy Information Administration, but particularly importantly globally, the International Energy Agency, is to help in the collection and distribution of what we hope will be credible and real facts. And often what matters is not it's, it's not that, that the, the facts that are being provided are dishonest facts. Uh, often what matters is what it's not reported or what's not highlighted or what's not collected. Uh, and this is, in many respects, a more serious problem than put the finger on the scale of facts or wishful thinking attached to facts. So given the stakes, and I outlined those at the outset, the stakes are enormously high because to repeat, Hydrocarbons still are utterly the dominant source of the world's energy. They will be the primary source of the world's energy, even if and when all the money gets spent in Europe and the United States. So 10 to 20 years from now, hydrocarbons will still dominate. Oil will still be a critical fuel. The stakes are very high because the geopolitics of the world will still be as ugly in the future as it is in the present and the past. So the stakes are high. The risks continue to be high, arguably higher. What we want to do is increase, not a road trust, in information about the state of play in energy domains in order to make plans, in order to have contingency uh, plans, in order to assess risks, whether you're a policymaker, or a business, uh, or an investor. You'd hope that we'll see more of this. I think we'll see more of this because the stakes are high. But just to wrap up with... Uh, where I started in my observation that it's time for the United States uh, to think hard about its support, and it's the dominant financial supporter of the International Energy Agency, to think hard about what the IEA could do to help address the problem of providing credible as well as as accurate as humanly possible information to the world in energy domains. There's a simple solution given that its mission is straight, um, and the IEA could be broken into two parts. Instead of an international energy agency, there'd be an international energy 
information agency in a separately funded and separately governed international energy transition agency. So you'd have a international energy you'd have an information agency and an energy transition advocacy agency. The constitution for the energy information agency would prohibit it from ag advocacy. And it can be structured in a way to minimize a political drift, you know, structured similar to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, where you have uh, a five-member commission that runs it, and the commissioners have non-contemporaneous rolling um, five-year terms. So that doesn't, there's nothing perfect, but it's a pretty good way to insulate uh, the running of an organization from being whipsawed. And the other agency, the International Energy Transition Agency, Okay, it's not complicated how it gets run. It's got an advocacy advocacy program, and the members can you know stay in or st you know join or leave depending on the politics of their individual countries. This would greatly improve the clarity of what's going on. You'd have one group pushing for a policy, fair enough, and you'd have another group providing information about what all the world's different political policies are doing and causing to have happen and risks that are being created. In fact, not wishful thinking, but what's in fact happening. That would be extraordinarily important. The only way we can make that happen, in, in my view, and I think there may be others would share it, is to, and the only way to force that reform is just, you know, an old fashioned tool, just brute force. Suspend, suspend the payments, stop payment. Uh, this is true in personal life. People stop paying you, it gets your attention. This wouldn't, uh, I mean, there's just, you have to do that because of the nature and the inertia of international organizations. It's just, it's just wired into the nature of those those beasts. This would, this is a, this is actually an effective mechanism, and it wouldn't be the first time that the United States uh, has done such a thing. President Reagan did that with UNESCO back in 1984. To much uh, media, uh, uh, you know, arm flapping and anxieties, but. He, he did that because the UNESCO had strayed from its founding mission, its, found, its founding humanitarian mission. UNESCO, by the way, did reform and the U.S. rejoined in 2002 under uh, President Bush, 43. Uh, by the way, for the record, uh, President Obama froze UNESCO contributions again in 2011. He was reacting to UNESCO's granting Palestine full membership. By the way, this says something about the uh, enduring geopolitical challenges, self-evidently. Staying with UNESCO, President Trump withdrew membership from UNESCO in 2017, and then President Biden rejoined it this past summer, 2023. It's not just UNESCO that has been subjected to this kind of uh, uh, fiscal bludgeoning to, to reshape uh, international missions. So there's actually a long history of actions like that. In fact, uh, in 1950, President Truman pulled the U.S. out of Interpol uh, to get it to behave. President Carter withdrew from the International Labor Organization in 1977. President Clinton uh, withdrew from the UN Industrial Development Organization in 1996 and so on and so forth. You can Google all this stuff up and find it in, in the history uh, the history book Wikipedia. There is a, there is a uh, honorable tradition for an individual nation, especially the dominant funder of an international agency, to suspend payments to in order to enforce uh, a reshaping and a rest restoration of a mission that the primary funder may deem as appropriate. And keep in mind, I'm not suggesting that the United States shouldn't, under whatever administration is in power, fund the promotion, the advocacy group of an energy transition. I'm just proposing they be separately funded. 
That way we can structure something that might be insulated from political whipsawing, the International Energy Information Agency, from something that should be subject to political whipsawing, which would be the International Energy Transition Agency. So climate activists, let me close with this thought. Um, because climate activists are really eager to ensure that businesses in general disclose risks from unexpected, and I'm air quoting, extreme weather, the extreme weather possibilities in the future. This is a subject we could talk about, I suppose, but set aside the merits of such demands. There's some merits to it, frankly. I mean, it'd be nice to know, um, you know, you should think, should think about what nature can do to damage your business and your supply chains. Uh, this would just be good planning. Some of the things that you might want to disclose um, publicly, some of you might not want to. There might be reasons not to because it exposes things about your business that can be competitive. But set that aside. There are some merits. But if there's merits to disclosing risks to businesses because of unexpected uh, you know, consequences from extreme weather, there are certainly reasons to disclose risks from unplanned energy disruptions, both the physical loss of energy supply or a, a brutal change in energy economics. Disclosing those risks is arguably every bit as important. I would say more important to plan for planning for businesses, for planning for policymakers. And you can only do the latter uh, with information about the present. The former, disclosing risks about future weather, you're guessing the future weather. You could certainly disclose risks about what would happen if your business that were downstream from a dam and the dam uh, broke from flooding, what it would do to you, that's fine. But future weather is a theory. Present day risks from energy disruptions is not a theory. We know exactly what would happen to many businesses. If there were severe price shocks or supply shocks, would be good to be, be be more than good. It'd be critical to know and have the information about those possibilities. I'll close finally with uh, where I started and why we're pushing so hard on the international energy agencies. The need to have it be a, a credible purveyor of information about energy is that again, energy is the foundational infrastructure of society. As I've said earlier. It's worth saying again, it comes from my bias, I guess, as a physicist, energy is the foundational feature of the universe. It's, it's just, energy is ubiquitous. It's a bit, and, and it's actually relevant, that, that physics fact is actually relevant to a point that energy is in fact available in unlimited quantities for civilization to make it prosper and expand. The problem has always been, since the dawn of civilization, is that we have to invent and build machines that can capture and deliver energy in a way that's affordable, tolerable, the societies need and when they need it. Information about that is really important. It's critical. I know there's probably no corner of our society where facts can supersede politics. I know that. I may be an optimist, but I'm not, I'm not naive. <laughs> but we should at least try to improve the confidence in the facts that we get about the energy infrastructures that underpin civilization. And we could start that by reforming the IEA. Call me an optimist that this such a reform is possible. I, I confess there's a significant element of optimism in that, uh, in that aspiration. So that's it for this episode. Keep those cards and letters coming. Give us a rating. It's always, uh, I'm compelled to say, like all podcasters, we prefer positive ratings. Uh, send questions, I'll answer them. I often, always respond to email questions 
and social media, LinkedIn, and Twitter questions. Um, I look forward to talking to you again in my new capacity this year and in my old capacity with my continuing affiliation, affiliation with the Manhattan Institute. I'll be writing lots more, talking lots more, continue, continue, continuing. I don't know if I can talk, I'll continue it. I'll continue my podcasts uh, as I march through my new, uh, my new missions in this uh, coming year. And that's my news. And if I may say again, I'm optimistic about all my new ventures too that I mentioned at the outset. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Thank you.